984. As someone who loves baseball, I've always had an appreciation for the switch hitter. While I'm predominantly left-handed, I can hit from the right side. I'm decent, that is. What is even more impressive is a pitcher who can throw from both sides. You don't see a pitcher throwing from both sides very often. But a few years back, there was a guy by the name of Pat Vendetti. And uh, he's a switch pitcher who made his major league debut a few years ago. And they even made a rule after him called the Vendetti Rule. He's an ambidextrous pitcher that has caught a lot of attention because of his unique style and ability. Well, in our passage today, the Apostle Paul is a bit ambidextrous in his delivery and style. He could at one moment preach to the Jews in the synagogues, and the next moment preach to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, in the marketplace or wherever they might be gathered. So in fact, that's what we see happen here in Acts chapter 17. He's able to do both. One moment preaching this way, the next moment preaching the other way. But as Paul lands here in Athens, he's waiting for his ministry companions. He's waiting for Silas, waiting for Timothy to arrive. And that's where we pick up here in verse 16. It's a longer passage. We're going to read verses 16 through 34, but I think it's helpful to read the entire passage. So Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Hear the words of our great God. So while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us, and, what, and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect, for as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is He served by human hands as though He needed anything since He Himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of which they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said for we are also his offspring. Since we are God's offspring then we shouldn't think that the divine, image, the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, 
God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has set a day when He is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man He has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising Him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule Him. But others said, we'd like to hear you about, we'd like to hear you from again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, send out light and truth. Help us to believe your words. Father, these are strong words, encouraging words, uplifting words as we see that you are the one true God. We thank you and praise you that you reign over all. Would you reign today in the hearts of those who have gathered? Lord, remind us that you are Lord of heaven and earth. And Lord, we thank you and praise you that you have given us your word to know you and to make you known. Make your people more like Christ today. Father, those who don't know you, we pray that you might draw them to yourself. Change their hearts from unbelief to belief today to see that Jesus Christ is Lord. We thank you and praise you for all these things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So you see here in Acts 17, there's a lot going on in this chapter. Thankfully, we're going to return to this chapter. Just We're going to look at a couple of verses in, in a few weeks. J.D. Payne is professor at Samford. He's going to be doing a deep dive looking at God's sovereignty and what God is doing around the world for our missions conference. It's going to be fabulous, fantastic. I know it's a shameless plug, but it's for missions. It's okay. But back here in the passage, Paul is in the spotlight as he delivers this address to the people. And the center of attention is on him, but he turns the attention on God. This, you, you worship all these things. You worship even this unknown God. I want to tell you the one true God. So he turns his attention on God. So the big idea here in this passage is that God the Creator saves all sorts of people through the proclamation of the gospel. And because of who God is, we worship Him and we proclaim who He is. So the first thing I want us to see this morning is that Paul is proclaiming a strange message. In verses 16 through 21, Paul becomes deeply distressed. Perhaps your translation says provoked. What, what provoked him? What gets his attention? He's not awestruck by the city or the architecture, the landscaping. No, he's distressed. It's not because of a lack of dining options. It's because the city is full of idols. Something within him is provoked. He's distressed. He's discouraged. And historians believe that the marketplace in Athens was literally lined with idols. Many of them were tributes to Hermes, the god of trade. It's been said that it's easier to find a god than a person in Athens at times. The scene sickens Paul. Idolatry should sicken and trouble us as well. From graven images to various things that our hearts embrace, we too should be appalled at idolatry. But we see in this passage, Paul is not deterred in his mission. As was his custom, he goes to the synagogue to reason with the Jews there. He knew their way of life really well. He knew what it was like to be 
a Jew. He is a Jew. He came from that lineage. He knew their heritage. He, was, he comes from a devout Jewish family. But he was converted, and he is a follower of Christ. And we see in the passage that he longs for his family to come to faith. In Romans 10, it says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. Do we long for our family members to come to know Christ? Do we pray for our family members to come to know Christ? We must share what God has done for us. As we sang this morning, as I spoke with people in the lobby, we must testify of God's goodness, His grace. Has He been faithful to you? Yes. Has He been faithful to me? Yes. We must speak of what He has done. And that's what Paul is doing. He is zealous for his others to come to faith in Christ. But Paul, our ambidextrous evangelist, knows how to speak to the Jews and to the non-Jews. He was found in the marketplace every day with those who just happened to be there. Did he run out of eggs having to go back and forth to the marketplace? No. He was strategic. He was a man on a mission. And his mission becomes into focus in verse 18. He is speaking of the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. He's focused, laser beam focused on the resurrection. But the Epicureans and the philosophers are wondering what this is all about. That what, is, what does the text say? They say, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Then there was others who threw in their two cents and say, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities. Why did they say that? Well, he's talking about Jesus and he's talking about the resurrection. So they think, well, maybe he's a polytheist like us. Maybe he believes in multiple gods. But that's not the case. Just a brief word about the Epicureans and Stoics. I think we've got a slide up here. The Epicureans sought to attain the maximum amount of pleasure and the minimum amount of pain. They were pure materialists. They basically said, the life is all there is. You only go around once. Have you heard that before? So if it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, stay away from it. Avoid what hurts. Those are the Epicureans. Then the Stoics believe that life is filled with both good and bad, that you cannot really avoid the bad. So what you have to do is just simply grin and bear it. They focused on self-sufficiency. We can see different aspects of this in our own culture. So these philosophies, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they had no time, they had no framework for Jesus. He didn't fit the mold. In fact, the supernatural resurrection is hard for any of us to swallow. So they're wondering about this Jesus and this resurrection. So Paul goes on now to proclaim the gospel of the one true God. He proclaims that Jesus not only died, but rose from the grave. Quick show of hands. How many resurrections have you witnessed? Anybody been to a resurrection reveal party? Me neither, unless we put Easter in that category. But the, so we see these are strange teachings. This is strange things. And so as Paul is teaching, as he's preaching, some are like, this guy is crazy. But yet others say, we want to know more about this Jesus that you're preaching. So they take him to the Areopagus so that he can teach more. The passage tell, tells us that some want to learn more about this Jesus. And we see in verse 20, in verse 20, they're wanting to know what these strange things mean. 
the Athenian audience want to know not just the facts about the resurrection, but the significance about the resurrection. And then Paul, or Luke, our author, gives us uh, a little bit of a, an aside in verse 21 of the unsatisfiable curiosity of the Athenians. Always wanting to know the latest news. Always wanting to know what's next. What's the next philosophy? But their curiosity opens the door for Paul's message. So we've seen that Paul is proclaiming a strange message. Now the second thing, in verses 22 through 30, he's communicating a special message. The message that I'm proclaiming to you, Paul is saying, is not like the messages you've heard in the past. This is a special message. And it's relatively short. It's not tweetable short, but it's only 258 words. So some might be wondering, Paul got a lot across here in 258 words. No, this isn't the robust sermon. This is the outline version. This is the elevator speech. So as we see what Paul says here, he, he begins his message in the Areopagus. The Areopagus, I think we might have another slide, was both a court and a hill. It literally means hill of Ares. Ares was the Greek god of war. And Areopagus was named after the, the god Ares. The Roman equivalent god was Mars, so therefore it's sometimes referred to as Mars Hill. So from this hill, Paul begins his message. He gets the attention of his audience in saying, People of Athens, I see basically that you are extremely religious in every aspect. And then he goes on to talk about what that looks like. So as you listen to this passage, I do hope you realize how central worship is. Everybody worships something or someone. We don't cease to worship. In fact, G.K. Chesterton said this, when man ceases to worship God, he does not worship nothing, but instead worships everything. So Paul is pointing this out. You are worshiping something. Let me tell you who you need to worship, the God of Scripture. When I read verses 22 and 23, I could easily say this. People of Hingham and those on the south shore, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect, for as I passed through your towns, I found old churches, sacred traditions. So we may not have altars set aside for unknown gods and idols, but we do have objects of worship. Our objects of worship are things like wealth, comfort, freedom of thought, and even creating images of who we are and want to be. So we see that we are not very different. We pretend to worship nothing while often worshiping everything but God. Someone recently told me, I must ask for God's forgiveness when I fall prey to these things. You and I must do the same. So as Paul begins to communicate to the crowd gathered, he does so by outlining a Christian worldview. Everybody has a worldview, the way they view the world. And there are many worldviews, but a Christian worldview becomes a driving force in life. It gives us a map of God's plan and purpose for this world. It's our identity and way of thought is shaped by our worldview. So last week, Pastor Cody gave us kind of some bullet points um, that relate to the gospel, that outline the gospel. We see what a worldview must look like um, here in this section. God as creator and maker of heaven and earth. Some of these are specifically outlined, others are implied. 
God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need us. Talk about stepping on our toes. God loves all ethnicities. Amen? God is sovereign. God is to be worshipped. God provides what we need. We find purpose in God. We must repent and God will judge all. We're not going to be able to highlight all of these verses this morning. But each of these verses and truths could be a sermon of themselves. But I want to just highlight the character of God and our response to God. That's Paul's message here this morning. We must respond to who God is. So the God who created you created everything. He is the God who provided everything you need. This passage makes it clear He is not far from each one of us. The difficulty of finding and worshiping God lies not in His distance from us, but our distance from Him through the blinding effects of sin. So it's not like God is trying to get to us. He is near. We are far from our own sin. Our sin has blinded us to the beauty of the one true God. He is the sovereign one. He demonstrates His power and presence He is worthy of our worship. In verse 24, we read of God's greatness. God made the world and everything in it. Chances are, especially after the past few days, you're going to drive home today and you're going to see the blue skies, you're going to see the trees, and you're going to be like, wow, this is amazing. We have family in town. Sheena's parents are here. And... uh, We've been showing them the sights. Of course, we started with the important things. We went to Nona's first. Then we went to Plymouth Plantation. And um, then we went to the Museum of Science. And as we were there, there were some interesting displays, different exhibits, presentations. And they had a lot of good things there. But if you don't have God as creator as your foundation, then you're missing the point. Well, this is where Paul begins. This is his point that God is creator. He is Lord of heaven and earth. Think on that just for a moment. God created you. God created all things so that we might worship Him. So, verse 24 reveals God's authority. And then Paul goes on to say, this same God who rules over all does not live in shrines made by hands. But this is not a new statement. This has been said before. In fact, Solomon said something similar at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings. There he says, but will God indeed live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less this temple I have built. So the point being is that God created all things. We, as the created ones, are called to worship Him. This thought is pressed even further at the end of verses 24 and 25. God does not live in shrines made by hands. He's not served by human hands. We love to build things. We love to use our hands. My son loves to use his hands. He loves to build things. And that's a good thing. That's a God-honoring thing. But we did not create God. He created us. He does not need anything. He gives life and breath and all things. So we see that this reveals God's authority and His superiority. What a blow to the notion that we are self-sufficient. It's been said that America prizes autonomy. 
Well, God prizes His glory. And how is His glory on display? Through Jesus Christ. Then, not only does we see God's authority and His superiority, but then we read of God's plan from creation to the nations. One of the the, uh, points that we can make about why Christianity is true is how it is spread across the world. It's not confined to one place. It's not like some religions where you find it in one corner of one nation and that's it. Christianity has spread to every nation. And we see that God is at work in all the nations. Paul speaks of appointed times and places that are designed by God so that we might come to know God. We see God is in control of cities, countries, and even circumstances. So we see God's authority, His superiority, and God's sovereignty. Again, we're going to talk about this much more in a few weeks. We read of God's involvement. We must understand that His presence requires a response. We respond to this God. We must worship Him. And that's where our passage takes us in verse 28. Paul quotes some pagan poets to make his point. He quotes Epimenides and Eratus. I haven't read these poets But he quotes them not to validate them, but to draw from them as he relates to his audience. He's relating to his audience, and he quotes them as an aid in defending and spreading the gospel. So in verse 28, it reads, In him we live and move and have our being. Well, who is the him that we're talking about here? It's not um, Eratus, it's not Epimenides. The him is God. Through this traditional Greek formula, Paul uses it to help his audience see their purpose in God. In God we live. In Him we have purpose and identity. Because of God we are born. But we are not just born to live and to die. We're not just simply here one moment and gone the next. We live because of God. We move because of God. Our entire being should be wrapped up in knowing Him Because He created us and provided a way to know Him. So God, the uncreated one, calls us to worship Him. This is the point of verse 29. We are the created, not the Creator. He is divine and He deserves our attention. What do we value? We value gold, silver, precious stones. What does Paul say? God is not any of those things. Paul is unveiling their idolatrous nature and showing them that God is above and beyond carved idols. We worship a God of revelation, not of our imagination. We worship a God of revelation. That's what Paul says here. Not a God of our imagination, not a God that we conjure up, not any of these things. The God of creation deserves all praise, all honor, all adoration. In other words, we must be in awe of Him. This is the God who created us. And so now Paul is moving to his conclusion in verse 30. It says, God overlooked the times of ignorance. He now commands all people everywhere to repent. He says, now is the time to repent of your sins and turn to the one true God. The God of mercy, the God of grace says, now turn So what does this mean that God overlooked the times of the past? In the sense, He allowed them to walk in their own ignorant ways. 
He did not come forth in immediate judgment, nor did He come forth with the revelation of the mystery of Christ. But now, but now, the mystery, the beauty of Jesus Christ has been revealed. And what does Paul say? The time to repent is now. While repentance might seem like an uncomfortable topic, what would you rather be preached? Comfort or Christ? We want Christ. For those who follow Christ, our message must not be, well, you're a good person, everything will turn out all right as long as you follow your heart. That's not the, the, the gospel. That's not what Paul preaches. We see that our hearts are sick. They're deceitful. They're twisted. They need a cure. They need to be healed. Well, how can they be healed? Paul makes it clear through Jesus Christ. You need a Savior. I need a Savior. You have failed to seek after God and do things your own way. I'm in the same boat. Romans 3 says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So now is the time to repent and turn from sin by turning to Jesus Christ in faith. And you can do that today. This is not a message of yesterday. This is the same message that Pastor Cody, Pastor Mike, myself, we preach. You can turn to Christ in faith today. Christ died. Christ was buried. And He rose from the grave so that you might die to sin and live for God. Well, Paul brings his message to conclusion. He speaks of God as creator, as ruler, and orchestrator. Now we see that God is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man He has appointed. The man whom God has appointed to judge is Jesus Christ. This is the, the, your opportunity for your Sunday school answer. Jesus Christ. Eternity is at stake. So Paul pleads with the Athenians to believe in Jesus. Let me again plead with you. I don't know everyone's heart here this morning. Let me plead with you to believe in Jesus Christ. Scriptures say there is one God, there is one mediator between God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. So Paul's argument is that the resurrection is the linchpin to Christianity. The proof for Paul is the reality of the resurrection. It's the same proof for millions of Christians today. The resurrection is foundational to our faith and it fuels evangelism. It fuels why we share because of God's grace. God has been gracious, so we share. So we see Paul was proclaiming a strange message. He was communicating a special message. And then third, we must respond to a supernatural message. Adrian Rogers says, The resurrection is not merely important to the historic Christian faith. Without it, there would be no resurrection. It is the singular doctrine that elevates Christianity above all other world religions. So in other words, the resurrection is not about yesterday or history. It is relevant for today. So there must be a response to the resurrection. What's the response here? We see it in verses 32 through 34. Some ridicule the gospel. Have you ever shared the gospel and some say, that's crazy. You're crazy. Some reject it altogether. Yet others receive the good news. So in evangelism, as we share with those that we love, we must remember that God is sovereign. You and I are not responsible to produce converts. 
you and I are responsible to share the gospel. God will draw sinners. He will save. We must share. We must keep on sharing. You've probably heard this before, but it often takes Muslims several times, many times, to hear the gospel before they respond. It may take your one several times to hear the gospel before they respond. So let me give us five quick uh, words of application as I close. Look for ways to connect their story, your neighbor, your friend, your family member. Look for ways to connect their story to God's story. Number two, people have honest questions. They're, they're curious. Three, not everyone will listen. But some will believe. And then last, pray often. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. It is living. It is active. We thank you that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, Lord, I pray, Father, as your word has been proclaimed, as we have proclaimed that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave, Lord, remind us of these truths, and Lord, help us to believe. Father, forgive us for our unbelief. Awaken us today to believe these truths. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who has never repented, who has never trusted in Christ. We pray that today will be the day of salvation for them. For those who are in Christ Jesus this morning, encourage us, Lord, with your word. As we know that you are sovereign, as we know that you are gracious and merciful, remind us of our own stories, that we maybe once mocked the gospel, that we maybe didn't understand it, had questions, but now we believe. We thank you for these things. Encourage us as we leave this place to meditate and savor, and savor the good news of the gospel and to share this good news with others. We thank you for all that you have done. Lord, teach us day by day to walk by faith. Lord, we thank you and praise you that as Paul proclaimed a strange message, that this strange message has come and we have believed it. So Lord, help us to go from here proclaiming a special message, knowing that it is the message of salvation. Eternity is at stake. And so Lord, help us to communicate this message knowing that you are saving sinners from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. We give you all the praise and honor and glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.